Well, good morning. How are we? You don't sound convinced. You might just want to check the pulse of the person next to you. It's great to be here today. Uh, it is great to be able to spend some time in the Word with you today. And uh, we are looking at a very unique, uh, a, a unique Christmas passage. It's one we don't usually preach on. And I think that's why Pastor Matt gave it to me uh, to see if I still had some preaching skills left. We'll see. We'll find out today. Uh, when you think of Christmas, what words come to mind for you? Just yell out, just one, one word or two words that come to mind. Joy? Food? Sorry? Christ? Family? Sorry, presents? Cookie? Amen. Preach it. Come on up here. How about words like dragon and war and exodus or exile? Do those words come to mind for you at all? Not usually, right? Usually it's, it's warm and fuzzy, little kittens, raindrops on roses, and all that lovely stuff, right? Yeah, well, our passage today presents a very different picture of Christmas. As a matter of fact, the story I'm just going to share with you for a moment here is probably a better snapshot of what the passage is saying about Christmas than cookies and food and, and joy. And so let me just share this with you. In, on Christmas Day of 1914, six months after World War I began, something wonderfully strange happened on the battlefront. The sounds of rifles and shells exploding ceased along a number of places along the Western Front. And they ceased in favor of Christmas celebrations. Starting with German soldiers, hard to believe the Germans would start anything nice, but they did. Starting with German, I'm Dutch, I have to do a slam on the Germans, just, it's part of my contract. Starting with German soldiers, Soldiers from both sides emerged from the trenches and shared gestures of goodwill. The Germans came out, Freudige Weihnachten, which doesn't sound that friendly, but means Merry Christmas. And troops slowly climbed out of their foxholes and called out Merry Christmas in their native tongue across this no man's land where no one dared to go. Some gathered around Christmas trees hastily set up and randomly decorated and end up singing Christmas carols, exchanging gifts of cigarettes and plum pudding in no man's land. They even exchanged helmets and wore each other's helmets. Is that not strange? This truce lasted 24 hours, after which the hostilities re resumed. But for that one day, peace was experienced by those at war with each other. One German lieutenant said this, how marvelous and how wonderful, and yet how strange it was. The English officers felt the same way about it. Thus Christmas, the celebration of love, managed to bring mortal enemies together as friends. Is that not amazing? Um, what was amazing even more was uh, the Christmas truce was banned after that. For all the rest of the years of the war, they weren't able to do that. Matthew offers us today in our passage a bit of an obscure view of Christmas. 
He focuses on the birth narrative, but puts a different perspective on it. So today we're going to examine what Matthew has to say about Christmas and the implications for our lives. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to read from verse 13 to 18. Matthew 2, 13 to 18. Should we stand for the reading of God's word? Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take up the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he heard that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old and under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The reading of God's word. Please be seated. What a, what a different Christmas story, isn't it? Matter of fact, it's one of those ones you say, you know, maybe we don't need to preach this. We just skip past it and move on to something happier. But it's still part of the word. And what I find amazing here is that Matthew wants us to understand some very profound things about Christmas. There are three implications about the Christmas story that Matthew wants us to understand. That Christmas is ultimately a declaration of war. That Christmas is ultimately a declaration of freedom or redemption. And that Christmas is ultimately a declaration of forgiveness. And I want to look at those three things with you to discover these three critical truths. The implications of Christmas. Well, the first thing I discover is that Christmas is about a declaration of war. What a strange thing. Verses 13 to 15, let me read them for you again, and let me just unpack it a little bit. When they had gone, that is the wise men, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And so he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until Herod's death. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew records this very strange intervention into what had been a very peaceful birth, a very peaceful season in the lives of Mary and Joseph and the Christ child. About a year, maybe two after the birth, living in Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph had been blessed with gold and myrrh and frankincense by the Magi who had visited and on the heels of this visit, as the Magi were just pulling out of town, Joseph is visited by an angel, and he's told, get up and escape to Egypt. Not what you'd expect to hear. There's a sense of urgency, if you unpack the words, this, this, this intense urgency, flee and flee now. And Joseph and Mary, we were told, responded immediately. I mean, we don't know exactly when they went after he received word, but it seems, according to the text, that they left that very night and they headed off to Egypt. To take off for Egypt was no small feat. 
from where they were in Bethlehem to the border of Egypt was about 120 kilometers across some very arid, dry, and un, unfriendly land. And then, we don't know exactly where they went. Uh, one commentator I read suggested that maybe they went down and took a look at the pyramids. I think that's maybe a bit far-fetched, but who knows? Maybe they did. But the closest major city would have been Alexandria. And that was still another 160 kilometers from the border. It was a very large city and had a large Jewish population. It's possible they went there. We don't really know. But in total, their, their journey was about 300 kilometers. Can you imagine that? Fleeing for your life, mostly on foot, and heading from here to Kamloops or here to Penticton. That's a long way to go. It's this incredible feat born out of a highly credible threat. Herod was out to kill Jesus. Herod was an amazing man. He was a powerful ruler under the Romans. He was appointed king of the Jews by the Roman Senate. And he had a close relationship with a guy named Augustus. He was the emperor. Herod was an amazing builder. Matter of fact, you can go to Israel today and you can still see the remnants of what Herod built. If you go to the temple, you can see the foundation stones. I've touched them. They're amazing. Herod put those in place. He built the Herodian where he was buried. That's very near Jerusalem. He built Masada, a palace that hangs on the mountainside. It's incredible too. And he built a place called Caesarea on the, on the ocean, Caesarea Maritima. Herod was an amazing ruler, but he was also incredibly paranoid. Herod was known to have murdered his favorite wife because she threatened his throne. He murdered two of his sons because he was afraid that they were going to plot against him. They hadn't, but he was afraid they might. And then he murdered a third son who decided to press his, his, um, his privilege for the throne when Herod was getting older. Herod was known for acts of cruelty as a matter of fact, Augustus, his friend, said this about Herod. It's better to be Herod's pig than be Herod's son. Can any of you claim that? Don't raise your hand if you can. It's good. Here in this strange passage, there is the story of the slaughter of innocent children to and under in Bethlehem in the surrounding area. Now, we don't know exactly how many kids were slaughtered, but if you look at the population at the time, it's likely that somewhere between five and 20 kids were, were slaughtered. And it seems impossible to believe that Herod would actually do that, but it's not when you consider his track record. Remember, as, as Herod approached death, he was so paranoid and he so wanted people to feel sorry for him and to cry at his death that he arranged to have all the leaders of Judea gathered together in a place called the Hippodrome, and upon his death, to be killed so there would be mourning, that people would cry when he died instead of laughing. That's how strange he was. See, Matthew wants us to understand that Christmas is a declaration of war. That it's the opening salvo of a holy God against the demonic realm. That God breaks into the human condition to deal with sin, death, and the devil. Christmas is a story of God entering the world to fight and to finish a cosmic battle, the battle for our souls that began just shortly after creation. Christmas is a picture of a spiritual battle that's been taking place ever since creation, when Satan led Adam and Eve into sin 
and God promised a savior. And it's important to remember the purpose of Christmas. It's not about tinsel and lights. It's not about presents and bows or fat men and elves or family and friends or feasts and festivities. Bonnie Henry will tell you that. <laughs> not about that. Christmas is God's response to our lost estate. It's God's intervention into our dire human situation. The human condition, apart from God's intervention, is so dreadful, so hopeless, that God sent his son in the form of a baby to intervene and to extricate us from sin, death, and the devil. Our situation is so desired that a holy God wages war with the devil so that he could redeem our souls from the pit of hell. That's the story of Christmas. And if you think I'm a little whacked in that, because my wife does, I was telling her my sermon outline as we were decorating our tree. That, that probably wasn't a good idea. <laughs> Anyways, listen to how the book of Revelation fleshes out Christmas. It gives us the backstage pass to Christmas. The apostle John writes, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and in agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in the heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. And he swept down a third of the stars out of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman as she was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with an iron rod. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she'd been to a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. That's a very different Christmas story, isn't it? but that's the backstage pass to what Matthew is telling us about. You see, you discover that Christmas is the start of a cosmic battle. It's a declaration of war. And that Satan or the devil or the crafty serpent or the roaring lion or the fiery dragon, depending on how you want to describe him, tries to thwart God's plans, even from the very beginning. At the very beginning in Genesis, Cain kills, is enticed to kill Abel because Satan wants to stop God's plan. Later on, you read that Pharaoh tries to slaughter all the Hebrew children. And now, Herod seeks to wipe out the Messiah. See, Herod, given to sin and human depravity, acts as an agent of Satan. And he strives to snuff out the Christ child. He's the red dragon who sought to devour the child. But God in his wisdom and in his sovereignty and in his foreknowledge intervenes, sending Joseph, Jesus, and Mary to Egypt. You see, we need to understand, folks, that Christmas is ultimately a declaration of war. It's the war of our souls. We easily fail to recognize the cosmic nature of Christmas, don't we? Matter of fact, I don't remember any of you saying dragon, war, we don't think that way. But that's essentially what it's about. 
We forget its true purpose because we're dazzled by the tinsel and the lights. Last night, Sherry and I um, went for a drive and we went through a, a Christmas light display that a church had put on in, in Chilliwack. Um, the amazing thing was, it was a very beautiful light display. You drive through their parking lot and you see all these things. And at the very end, the pinnacle of the Christmas display in this church, you know who was there? Santa. There was no mention of Jesus. So I think sometimes we forget that at the core of Christmas is Jesus, the Savior, born so he might die to save us from our sins. See, Christmas is God's intervention into the world to redeem us and to set us free. And we do well to remember the cosmic nature of Christmas and the cosmic nature of our faith. While the war is over, you need to understand the battle continues. See, Satan was defeated. He was taken out at the cross. That's what the Bible teaches. But Satan is determined to take out as many of us as he can before the end comes. Just as Satan strove to devour Jesus, he longs to devour us. And we do well to be aware of his schemes and to respond accordingly. He longs to lull us to sleep and think it's all about wonderful things when the reality is we're in a spiritual battle. Scripture reminds us repeatedly that the battles we face in life are not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers in high places. We are steeped in spiritual warfare, folks. And Christmas was the opening salvo. Listen to what Ephesians 6 says to us. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against spiritual forces in the heavenly places. See, we're engaged in spiritual warfare, both for our souls and the souls of those we love. And we ought to be wise and live in keeping with God's word. The apostle Peter writes it this way in 1 Peter 5. Be sober-minded and watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Even Jesus wants us to understand that this is a spiritual battle we're in. And Jesus puts it this way, a thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. This Christmas, I encourage you to be mindful of the cosmic battle. The battle that is our faith to live in the freedom and redemption that Christ provides. But don't forget, it's not about tinsel and cookies. It's about God having sent his son to redeem us from sin and from death. Here's the second thing I discover in this. Are you tracking with me okay? For good, you don't want me to step off the stage yet? Okay, well, Ken Vink does, but that doesn't count. <laughs> We're good, okay, Ken. Here's the second thing I discover, that Christmas is a declaration of freedom or redemption. 
comes in verses 14 and 15. <clears throat> Let me read it for you again. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. And he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. In his gospel, Matthew goes to great lengths to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. There's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills. And Matthew picks up on four of them here to make his point. See, Matthew weaves his narrative from the very beginning with references to Old Testament passages because he wants to link and he wants to name and he wants to identify Jesus as the Messiah and God's son. See, Jesus, Matthew wants us to understand, is the perfect fulfillment of God's promise. And so the very beginning, he starts with a long genealogy that most of us don't read because we're not sure how it all works. And then it goes on to talk about a virgin birth that some of us don't believe, but is absolutely true and necessary. And then we have him being born in Bethlehem because that's how the prophets had declared. And now we have him being brought down to Egypt, part of prophecy, and later heading back up to Nazareth. See, Matthew wants us to understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And so in this passage, Matthew quotes this very unique phrase, out of Egypt I've called my son. Anyone know where that comes from? What prophet that comes from? besides Pastor Eldon. And he only knows because we talked about it. Yeah, none of us do, right? It comes from one of the most exciting prophetic books that there is, the book of Hosea. You say to yourself, oh yeah, that one. <laughs> the book of Hosea. See, the thing is, when Matthew wrote this, all of his audience would have known that he was quoting from the book of Hosea. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. It's a reference to Hosea chapter 11. And it's a historic reference in Hosea to God bringing his people out of bondage and the slavery of Egypt into freedom. Remember, Hosea 11.1 1 reads this way. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. If you read the book of Hosea, you'll find yourself very quickly discouraged. I read it this week again. And it took me three times to get through it because it's like, oh man, it's so dire. It's, it's not very long, but it is really dismal because it's a book about the systemic wickedness of Israel. How Israel constantly turns from God to idols. Remember, Israel's called an adulterer or a prostitute. And in the middle of this book of despair, this book of indictment, Hosea writes these words. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Israel I called my son. See, Hosea recounts God's great act of salvation for Israel, the Exodus. It had happened some 700 years earlier. God, through Hosea, speaks with tenderness, with love, and with intimacy in the midst of their wickedness. He speaks this way regarding his people and recounting his mighty acts of redemption. And Matthew picks up on this and he wants us to understand something. Matthew sees this as prophetic. 
Matthew wants us, his readers, to understand that this Hosea passage is intended to be understood as a typology, that's the official word, a picture or an illustration of what God has done in the past through the Exodus, but what he will do or has done through Jesus. Just as God redeemed his people Israel out of Egypt, bringing them from the tyranny of Pharaoh into the promised land, Jesus came to redeem his people, that's you and me, from sin. He came to free us. When you read the book of Matthew, which I also read this week, you discover something very different again. Matthew has all these parallels between Jesus and Israel. Uh, it's interesting, um, when when. Israel originally goes down to Egypt. Do you know who leads them there? A guy named Joseph. Didn't mean to lead them there, but he leads them there. Who leads the Christ child of Mary to Egypt? A guy named Joseph. Hmm, interesting. In the Exodus story, there's a story of Pharaoh who comes to kill all the Hebrew children, boys. In Matthew's story, we're told that Herod comes to kill Jesus. In a couple of chapters in Matthew, Jesus heads off into the wilderness. He's there for 40 days. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. But there's parallel after parallel after parallel that Jesus is the new Israel. He's the perfect Israel. See, Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus came out of Egypt to redeem his people completely. Jesus is reliving the Exodus, standing in for the entire nation of Israel, standing in for all of God's people as the true beloved son of God, setting his people free from sin's tyranny. Didn't you love the Advent video? Wasn't that amazing? I hadn't seen it when I wrote the sermon. What's amazing in it is, I have a note here that says, many of us today need to be set free. We need to be redeemed by Jesus. In the video, that was exactly the story. We're held captive by the tyranny of sin and we believe the lies of the evil one who has come to destroy us. Whether it's fear or failure or addiction or relationship that's gone sideways and you think it's irredeemable or you just don't think you're worthy. Here's the message of Christmas. Jesus came to set you free. He came to lead you out of bondage into the promised land of relationship with him. What is your current bondage? What's your Egypt? What holds you captive from really serving and loving God? Jesus, the baby born in Bethlehem, who escaped into Egypt, was called out of Egypt by God to be God's gift to set you free, to redeem you from sin's grip. You need only open your eyes to the truth of who Jesus is and why he came. And in that sense, my friends, Christmas is a declaration of freedom and redemption. Christmas offers redemption to all who will follow Jesus. Freedom from the bondage of sin provided by Jesus. And the thing about Christmas is it highlights our need to permanently be redeemed from the bondage of sin. Jesus comes to set us free. Are you free in Jesus? Matthew wants his readers to understand that there's an offer of a new exodus 
in the light of this little phrase, out of Egypt I have called my son, comes this powerful promise of permanent freedom from sin's misery into salvation that we have been brought and we have been bought by a redeemer, the new Israel, our savior Jesus. See, Jesus came to set us free. What's amazing, if I, do I have some time still? Are we doing okay? Okay, book of Hosea, because I read the whole book. You got to hear it, story. Book of Hosea, not too bright a guy, Hosea, because he marries a woman named Gomer. Should have been his first clue. Guys, young guys, if you're dating a girl named Gomer, just think about that for a little bit, okay? Okay. Marries a woman named Gomer. Gomer leaves the marriage and becomes an adulteress. And then she prostitutes herself, selling her body for money. What does Hosea do? He goes after her. Hosea becomes an example of the manifest love of God for his people when they've walked away. Hosea goes and he buys her back and brings her back into relationship. See, this is the story of all who fall outside of God's redeeming grace. It's the story of, of mankind apart from, from a relationship with God. We are all gomers. Might be the phrase you want to pick up for your friend later on. You're just such a gomer. <laughs> be careful when you say that, though. See, here's the thing about the story of, of Hosea and Gomer. It's a story about God's unrelenting love for his people, especially the lost. Have you ever felt so far gone that God couldn't redeem you, that he wouldn't redeem you? The book of Hosea sheds light on the fullness of God's forgiveness and the fullness of God's grace and the fullness of God's love. See, Christmas is a powerful reminder that God loves you so much that he sent his son to save you, to pay the price for your sin, all of your sin. And there is no sin so great that the blood of Jesus does not cover it. And if you think it is, get over yourself. God's grace is far greater than our sin. God sent his son to save the world, to redeem us from lives filled and fueled and destroyed by sin. And I gotta tell you folks, that's way better than Santa. There's a tragedy in this passage, right? When Herod heard that he'd been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in the region who were two years old and under, according to the time he'd ascertained from the wise men. That's almost hard to believe, isn't it? Can you imagine the devastation that those mothers, those parents felt? So what you discover here is the epitome of sin's full effect, verse 16. See, Herod, if nothing else, represents the human condition left to its own devices. Herod's act of violence is a great example of the tyranny of sin and its ultimate end, death. That's the best we can hope for when we live a life of sin. Herod represents a life that is filled and fueled by the lies of Satan and by selfish ambition. It's a picture of a life of self-promotion and pride. 
It's the result of all humanity left to live in oppression and in exile. When we are filled with self-interest and fear and indifference, we are capable of murdering innocence arbitrarily for the sake of personal gain. You may not think so, but every one of us is capable of that. If it's between you and me, I'm going to win. Just watch me merge on the freeway. I came across this quote. It's an anonymous quote. It reads this way. Sin is an insidious, sinister, and ominous creature that inhabits us all. Humanity left to its own devices finds itself in a downward moral spiral wherein we become the center of our own depravity, selling the souls of others for our own fleeting prosperity and pleasure. What do you think? That true? It's sad. See, folks, this is the unchecked human condition. Humanity's not getting better and better. We're getting worse and worse. Just look at how we treat each other in this crazy pandemic. And yet, Christmas is about freedom in Christ. Here's the third thing I discover. That Christmas is a declaration of forgiveness. Verse 17 and 18. And then what is said to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew does it once again. He points back to a very obscure passage in the Old Testament. And it's found in Jeremiah chapter 31. And while the loss of the children would have been devastating and mothers would have been weeping unconsolably, it seems strange that Matthew would put this in here until you read Jeremiah 31. And then it becomes very clear. So you need to understand that Matthew is recalling another time in Israel's history. He's recalling a time when weeping and despair filled the land. Not because Herod had come to kill babies, but because people were being hauled away into exile because of their disobedience, their sin, and their wickedness. Jeremiah 31, 15 reads this way. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. You need to understand in this context that, that Ramah was a city or a place uh, we're not sure if it was just north of Jerusalem or just south of Jerusalem. It was either one. But it was the staging area for all the exiles. And so the, what happened was um, Assyria came down and got rid of northern Israel. And then a little while later, about a hundred and something years later, uh, Babylon came in and exiled southern Israel, Judah. Both kingdoms assembled people at Ramah. And they dragged them away. They dragged all the young men and all the young women into exile. And so mothers were left to weep and they were refused to be comforted because their kids were no more. They were dragged away because of the sins of the, of the nation. And Rachel here represents, Rachel's buried just south of Jerusalem, just north of Bethlehem. If you go there, they'll point out her tomb. Rachel represents 
all the women of Israel who are weeping because their kids are now experiencing grief because of their sin. See, Rachel weeps because her children, Israel, are being dragged off into exile. And there's this pervasive hopelessness that fills the land. The consequences of sin that leads to the exile drags them from the promised land. That's what Matthew is referencing when he references this peace. But what's amazing is, if you just read it that way, it just sounds horrible. It's like, oh man, what's going to happen now? But if you read on in the book of Jeremiah, you read on in chapter 31, God says something else. Verse 15 is this, this passage of weeping and lamentation. But listen to verse 16. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, for the work of, of grief, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. See, what Matthew wants us to understand, what Jeremiah tells us, what God tells us through Jeremiah, is that he is a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness and second chances. And that's what Christmas is about. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to Jeremiah. It's in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, it's gonna appear on the screen, but I want you to see uh, this declaration of forgiveness, four great promises that come out of the book of Jeremiah that Matthew wants us to understand in the context of what he's writing about Jesus. Here's the four promises, starting with verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and, and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand out of the land of, where? Egypt, yeah. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Oh, that sounds remarkable, like Hosea. Interesting, huh? Yeah. But this, this is the covenant that I will make. We'll get into that in just a second. First thing, that God wants us to understand in the Christmas story is that he is making a new covenant, a new promise that's fulfilled in Jesus. If you read on in the book of Matthew, chapter 26, verse 28, Jesus picks up the cup and says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. That Jesus' death on the cross creates a new covenant that God initiates for all who will believe in his son. And that's the wonder of Christmas. We're not lost in our sin. We're not lost in the demonic battle. We are being redeemed by the son of God himself. Here's the second thing I discovered. Let's continue on. Verse 33, 34. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. God promises a new relationship and not one that I have to talk to you about, one that you have yourself with God. It's the most amazing thing that we know God intimately. New covenant initiates a new relationship. And then it goes on in verse 34. For I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Forgiveness. Why did God send Jesus? So that he might forgive our sins through him. That he might establish a new relationship with us by him. 
all in the promise of his covenant. And here's the part that I love, 35 to 37. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the seas so it wa- its waves roar. <coughs> Excuse me. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease to be a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord. If the heavens can be measured and the foundation of the earth can be explored, then I will cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. What's he saying? Who who put the stars in the sky? God, right? Right? And who gives the sun for light? God. And he's saying, tell you what, when they can actually stop shining because they want to stop shining, then I'm going to forget my promise. But they can no more stop shining because God created them. It's this perpetual promise. God is saying, look, here's the thing. In Jesus comes perpetual hope. While the consequence of sin brings weeping and hopelessness, it need not be permanent. Because Christmas is about forgiveness and restoration. That is the great hope we discover in the Christmas story. That God gives us a new covenant in his son. That God gives us a new relationship through his son. That God provides forgiveness through his son and that it's permanent and no one can take it away. Not even Satan. So here's the thing, folks. This Christmas, you're going to have who-hoosers and what's-it, whatever the Grinch says. I don't know all those details. I just watch the show and wonder and cringe. You may have some friends over. You may open some presents. You may eat really well. I hope you do, Gord. I plan on eating well. I know Eldon will too. Preach it, brother, right? Preach it. But don't miss the point. Christmas is about God's love for you and his willingness to send his son into a cosmic battle that he wins so that you might be taken out of the land of sin and oppression and into the land of promise, that you might embrace a new covenant of forgiveness found in relationship with his son that is for you forever. And that's worth celebrating. So here's my one application with 12 points. (laughs) Just kidding, I'm not Eldon. One application, three points. Number one, recognize the cosmic implications of Christmas. If you're not serious about your faith now, get serious about it. It's not all lights and tinsel. People's souls are in peril. Jesus sent his son that we might help redeem them. That's our mission. Live in the fullness of your freedom, point two. You've been bought with a price. Share that gift with others so that they might be bought by the Savior too. And point three, embrace the privilege of forgiveness.
Celebrate the new covenant. Revel in knowing God and the depth of his love for you. Be fueled by forgiveness. Leaving sin behind, leaving bitterness behind. Embracing the fullness of God's love for you. And be confident that nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is an amazing thing that you came in the form of a baby and that you fulfilled so many of the Old Testament prophecies. And this morning we've looked at two. So out of Egypt you came that you might bring us out of bondage. And you took on the, the dragon that we might live and not be held captive in sin and in death. And that you've offered us a new covenant in your blood so we might have relationship with you that is intimate and personal, that is fueled by the forgiveness you've given us and is for eternity. So this Christmas, I pray, Lord, would you find us faithful? We ask it in your powerful name. Amen.